Welcome, and thank you for joining us on Real Insider News, where you get behind-the-scene updates directly from the people behind the film and TV production industry. I'm Brandon Hamill. And I'm Jeff Hamill. Today we have updates on a few more members of the community who sadly passed. A new show coming to Amazon Studios in the next few years. Predictions on how post-production will be handled in the near future. And how New York and Britain are reacting to revitalizing the local populace. Then we're going to interview director and director of photography Peter Nelson about his new film, The Pollinators. Stay tuned. Today's news segment is brought to you by ATM Services of Massachusetts, providing your customers access to cash that will increase impulse spending in cash purchases. Save your business from those hefty credit card fees with your own ATM. For more info, call or text Nick at 978-877-9801 or email nick.atmservices at gmail.com. Mel Brooks turned 94 years old on Sunday. He was born Melvin Kaminsky on June 28, 1926 in Brooklyn, New York. Now, of course, he's a legend. Uh, I mean, he's just, he's still funny. He, I mean, what a long-lasting career. I mean, I even knew him from my childhood with the, I mean, they were, the movies were a little bit before me, but with Spaceballs and Men in Tights, I, I used to watch Blazing those all the Saddles. Time. Oh, Blazing Saddles has got to be one of the best comedies ever made. Uh, what was the one? Uh, I bring you the the producer twenty. He drops some tablets. Fifteen? No, he comes out. Uh, I bring to you fifth the fifteen commandments or the or. Oh, and God spoke. Is that what it was? Oh, I think so. Yeah. I present to you the fifteen. Drops a tablet. Ten. The ten commandments. <laughs> Just brilliant. Oh, he's great, and he's always had great performances, both behind, like, I mean, not performances, but he's not only a funny writer, but also a great comedian on the screen, like, truly a powerhouse. And I understand that Mel Brooks was really good friends with Carl Reiner, so sad to say goodbye to one legend of comedy, but thankfully, we still got Mel Brooks kicking around. Well, I see where he got the, you know, his first name when he changed it from Melvin Kaminsky to Mel, Melvin, Mel, and he must have, right. he must have picked up Brooks because Brooklyn. I'm guessing. Where else would he get Brooks from Kaminsky? Yeah, it must have been. It's. It was probably just because it was easier to say. I know he served in World War II, so maybe that had something to do with it. Well, he changed. People called him Brooks or something. He changed his name as a teenager. Oh wow! Oh wow, that's interesting. I'd love to actually learn more about that. But yeah, so happy birthday to Mel Brooks, and we wish him many more. However, on a darker note. Sadly, legendary composer Ennio Morcone passed away at the age of 91 this past week. His career spanned over half a decade as he composed a plethora of films, ranging from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly to 2015's The Hateful Eight. Morcone's scores were not only great, but his work on the Man with the No-Name trilogy became emblematic of the Western itself. Whether or not you've seen the films, you've most certainly heard parts of his score since the classic now associated with the western genre comes from Morcone's work on the trilogy hmm i did not know that i did not i did not know where that came from so i wonder if that was introduced on the good the bad and the ugly i believe it was the good and the bad the ugly that that specific score came and he was also the pioneer who started the implementation of whip cracks and gunshots into western soundtracks now, any Western is going to mimic Morricone in some fashion. I mean, what's interesting is, you know, of course, the good, the bad, the ugly, that's uh, Clint Eastwood. Yep, directed by Sergio Leone. Now, I don't know where Clint Eastwood got his directing skills, but I know, I, I haven't worked with him, but I know there's many people in the Boston area that have, and he's a one or two take guy. Right. We're going to get this in one take, moving on, two takes, maybe, moving on. Very much in the discipline of celluloid rather than digital. Exactly. Exactly. And that was, of course, his era. Uh, on other sad news, Nick Cordero, the Broadway actor who battled COVID-19, has died at the age 41. Oh. Now, I was listening to his wife uh, on, on a show earlier today, and the interview wasn't today, but it was an interview that was done when this all started coming about, and, and she was saying that he didn't have the symptoms um really 
at least not at first. And then I, they, when he got to the hospital, there was something that they decided, okay, well, let's check for pneumonia, I believe. And that's when they discovered he had COVID. And then not too long after that, he had blood clots. So they amputated a leg. Uh, I mean, just one problem after another with, with the COVID. And, you know, sadly, uh, you know, he, he didn't make it. And he leaves a wife and a young son, Elvis, behind. Uh, you know, very talented actor, very sad situation. Yeah, it's as annoying as the quarantine is and all the tiny inconveniences it puts on us. We can't forget how dangerous COVID truly is. I mean, 41 is not the predicted danger range by any means. Far too young to be taken so early. Yeah, yeah, certainly. In other news, this is also sad, and it didn't have anything to do with COVID, but Charlie Daniels, who famously sang The Devil Went Down to Georgia, passed away in Tennessee on July 6. Now, he was 83. Charlie was a Grammy winner and a member of the Country Music Hall of Fame. So, I mean, he had a pretty good, I guess, run. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know much of the Charlie Daniels band, to be honest, but I'm pretty sure everybody's heard The Devil Went Down to Georgia at one time or another. Yeah, I mean, they could really uh, jam. And if you were, even if you weren't into country music now or then, they still had a unique sound to them. And they were just uh, unbelievable to listen to. Well, I'm glad that it wasn't COVID related, but it's still sad to see such talented members of the community pass, especially in a time where fear seems to be everywhere. Everything seems to be shut down. Thankfully, we're rising back up a bit, but um, Charlie Daniels will be missed, but we will always remember his great tunes. It's funny. I mean, you know, every end of every year uh, or sometimes it's be, it's the first couple of days of a new year, some news outlet, TV, radio, somewhere always comes up with a list of everybody that passed away the year before, and it's always amazing and seems you, you you listen to it in disbelief yeah um that all those people passed away now of course this next coming year you know depending on we're up to almost 130,000 deaths from covid so i don't know if there's going to be too much that's going to shock you uh come next year when they announce the total from covid hopefully hopefully we've we're going to end it soon uh hopefully it's not going to run through next year but I'm just saying, you know, every year I'm always, I'm always sort of like, wow, I didn't realize that that person passed away this year, that, you know, that past year. Uh, yeah, I think the sheer number of people you see at the end of every year, I mean, obviously we all expect that people die and all that, but it's hard to swallow. And it's, it's going to be especially tough this year. In bit lighter news, uh, well, I suppose this is mostly just kind of satirically funny. Tom Hanks' new film, Greyhound, which is being released on Apple TV, is coming with a bit of controversy. It seems that Tom Hanks isn't very pleased with the fact that Greyhound's going to be released on a streaming service. Originally, the film, which is a Sony production, was intended to reach theaters, but as we all know, that is a bit troublesome at the moment. So, Sony sold the rights to the film to Apple, and it is now going to be hosted, I believe, in the next week or so. Tom Hanks was saying that Quote, he doesn't want to anger his Apple overlords, but he does have a problem with the fact that a streaming service and on a television will be a lower sound and picture quality than, of course, a yeah, theatrical production. He was also upset because while promoting the film, he had to do a couple of Zoom calls. And apparently, in Tom Hanks' words, the cruel whipmasters at Apple told him that his background needed to be a blank wall, that he couldn't display any of his bookshelves in his house in the background. So, Tom Hanks seems to be toting around his celebrity invincibility a bit, because I don't imagine many people would be able to get away with uh, throwing so much shade at the company that's hosting their their work. All right, so, does this change how much he got paid? I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) What are you going to do to Tom Hanks? He's Tom Hanks. You can't do anything against him. Take your money. He can say whatever the hell he wants. Take your money and move on. I mean, you survived, allegedly covid in australia yeah. so take your damn money 
What do you care? Like, <laughs> apparently he was pretty attached to this film, so I could see how that'd be disappointing. But uh, I, I, from what I understand, Apple is a pretty rigid company, so they could probably be pretty difficult to work with. In other streaming news, Westworld's creators Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan are planning on beginning a new project with Amazon Studios. However, this new project will be a television adaptation of Fallout, one of the most famous video game series on the market. The Fallout franchise, which started in 1997, making it as old as I am, is set after a nuclear war in the year 2077. However, this is an alternate America that never left the culture of the 1950s. The series serves as a sort of biting satire of consumerism, nationalism, and general 1950s American nostalgia, while also providing the dangerous apocalyptic setting it's famous for. Fallout is a game that's always been hallowed for its unique atmosphere, writing, and iconography, so it's a good choice to bring to the small screen for sure. Now this is interesting because I've actually been speaking with a couple of people about what the next fad is going to be once the superhero genre dies down a bit. Now, of course, superhero films aren't going to disappear, much like the Westerns didn't disappear after they stopped dominating the box office. But for at the moment, the biggest releases are always superhero films. So eventually that's going to change. And one person I was talking to referenced that they think video game adaptations could become the next big thing. Now, I'm not really cons- uh, convinced of that because... In the past, video game adaptations haven't really been taken seriously, thanks to Uwe Boll, who uh, essentially, he, he directed a ton of them uh, as a way to get tax cuts and just made them really poorly. So it gave them a really bad name back in the, he did that back in the 90s. So I'm interested to see how this series plays out. I'm a big fan of the Fallout video game series. I think it could make a good show. Uh, some video games would definitely be difficult to translate. But I think that this one actually could be pretty promising. I mean, is this going to be animated like a video game, or is this going to be actors no, and CGI? No, it's going to be live action. Live action and CGI, I believe. Then it could have been anything. Why does it have to be Fallout? I mean, it could have... Uh, because, you know, it comes with a pre-made, pre-built audience. Okay. Yeah, that's the that's the whole draw of using these big IPs. I mean, that's why superhero films get so much money thrown into them, because... They're part of this huge franchise, so there's a guaranteed audience. And they're also making an Uncharted film, which Uncharted is a video game series that is heavily inspired by Indiana Jones. So it's kind of recursive that you, you Indiana Jones inspires a game, and then that game is then trans, uh, translated into a movie format. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. if these succeed, we'll of course see more of them, but uh, I'm a bit skeptical. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to get that time back <laughs> watching that. <laughs> uh, in, other, in, in more industry, in, in more heavy industry news, London-based post-production house Envy may be sh- a shining symbol of the future of post-production. While the company originally used consumer transfer services, much like WeTransfer, for their files, they adopted... Signian's media shuttle system in 2013. This system has allowed them to transfer their files at at uh, much more effective rates with their clients around the world, allowing them to work on a multitude of projects even throughout the pandemic. While all of their footage is stored on servers at their London headquarters, their ability to share files with clients around the world may be a first peek into the future of post-production, especially since this technique is effective enough to be unfazed by something as crippling as the pandemic. So I believe that this could be uh, a good example of why maybe more CGI artists or video editors may be working from home in the next decade or so, especially since many corporations have been shown by the pandemic and and uh, countries closing down that homework can be effective. <laughs> okay. So what what do you think of that? Do you think we might be seeing more people working from their individual homes rather than going to studios to do more individual work like video editing or CGI? Well, I think you're going to see that across the board. I don't know if it's going to be just the entertainment industry. Uh, mm. I mean, television is doing the same thing. You know, these people have a home studio uh, and you can't really uh, at first you can tell a difference. But little by little, things have gotten better lighting wise and audio wise. And it's almost seamless now. So I think that's a real possibility uh, across uh, you know, a lot of um, 
people's workplaces. You know, schools, teachers are, are doing Zoom meetings with students and so forth. And I, I think, right. you know, I think that's a plus side of, of this whole COVID thing in that, you know, hopefully that's going to reduce some of the traffic, some of the congestion on the highways across the country. If you can work from home, if you're disciplined enough to work from home. And I think there's been many studies that show that most people are more productive at home. Right. Uh, you know, if you spend your day going from meeting to meeting to meeting, what are you really accomplishing? I mean, yeah, you're you're sitting in a meeting and you, I guess you're sharing information and, and, and whatnot, but are you getting as much done as if, you know, it's sort of like being disciplined about checking your email. If you check your email every time the thing dings, you know, you never get anything done because you're constantly being uh, interrupted by a, a new thought. It's, it's also becoming more and more difficult for companies to deny the fact that people could do many of the same things they do in person at home since t- technology today is so expansive and we have so many capabilities simply from sitting at our desk. So Well, but I think the big, you know, the big question is, can you do it securely? Can you keep the, right. the information secure? You know, if someone's going to pirate the footage when it goes from A to B, well, that's going to be a problem. And I'm sure that if this becomes more prevalent, people would try to do that and we there would be a lot of... Uh, a lot of concern about that within the community. But if they do create a secure portal system, much like the one media shuffle media shuttle is providing for envy, then maybe this could be the new standard. It could be. Now it doesn't work across all platforms. For example, the New York governor Cuomo said Monday, he's concerned at the prolonged shutdown of New York city's cultural industry as cities move into phase three, but key businesses are still shuttered. You know, he doesn't expect, he expects, Broadway to be dark until sometime in 2021. Uh, mm. Movie theaters, which were supposed to open in phase four, uh, and and because other regions of the of the country and other states outside of New York are you know having this uh, this spike, uh, you know a lot of the states, including New York, are now examining uh, the possibility of pushing stuff further out. So, right. and, and, and his concern is, you know, it's a big part of New York City lifestyles going into the Broadway shows and leads to uh, hotel rentals, leads to restaurant, you know, business, meals out, uh, all that. So, you know, it's sort of a, a snowballing effect if you can't have your cultural arts um, bringing in money or bringing in foot traffic, then it's a trickle down. So that's what he's concerned about and rightly so yeah and it seems the uk has had similar concerns as well while previously we mentioned their pretty stringent fil- filming and quarantining plan for foreign uh, talents coming into the country they've recently backpedaled a bit on their established covid guidelines allowing for small high profile groups to enter the country and operate on sets without doing the 14-day quarantine however these members of the crew will have to live in bubbles quote-unquote only going to the locations needed to film the project. People such as Tom Cruise for the next Mission Impossible are among the members that are being allowed to skip quarantine in Britain in order to produce films. The UK has allowed such leniency in hopes that filming in the area will help stimulate the country's economic recovery. So it seems like uh, New York isn't the only place that's concerned with how long these uh, effects might linger on not only our economy, but on our culture. But is it really is it really a burden to to uh, Tom Cruise to, to come into a, uh, you know, go to a different country and quarantine for a couple of weeks before? That's a good question. I mean, 14 days wouldn't be a huge setback for a, such a high budget film, but uh, I don't know, maybe he has a packed schedule and he just wants to get through this project. So if I, maybe he doesn't want to spend as much time there. If I were a crew member, I might be like, you know what? I'm not going to do it. For the 14 days? No. I'm not going to do the movie. If Tom Cruise is, is is exempt from any type of quarantine, he can come and go as he wants. But the rest of the crew has to quarantine. You don't know what he's... I mean, there's new studies out that's saying it's the aerosol that lingers in the air for three hours, not necessarily just the, the droplets. So, you know, all right, he's flying on a private plane, but where's his pilot been? Where's his co-pilot been? You know, he gets to London, uh, even if it's a private airport. Who's been in there? Gets to his hotel room. 
Right. Who's the cleaning staff? Who's the maintenance staff? Why, why is he allowed? He's got more money than God. He can certainly afford, and the, and the, and the movie would pick it up anyway, some swank hotel room for 14 days. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure why there would be pushback against the 14-day quarantine. That isn't necessarily extreme, but it seems like there has been. And uh, this is this is uh, looking like the way that a lot of these productions are going to be going in Britain. Now, of course, apparently Tom Cruise is going to, only going to be going to the places relevant to the filming, as I said. But even if he did quarantine, it would be hard to say that you're completely safe from COVID since it can spread so easily. Well, that may be true, but it's... it's uh... If everybody else has to do it because he's Tom Cruise, he doesn't have to do it. Yeah, but only only select members. So I imagine the director and the leading actors and all that would be included in that. But it seems like uh, there there is a bit of favoritism going on. COVID doesn't care. <laughs> COVID doesn't care that you're Tom Cruise. Yeah, well, it also doesn't care if you're getting sick because of someone who didn't quarantine. Well. In a bit of lighter news, we're going to... Lighter news. Let's go some lighter news. <laughs> Is that a gaffing joke? In our next segment, we're going to be interviewing director slash DP Peter Nelson about his work on the new documentary, The Pollinators. Let's jump in. Director Peter Nelson has been a director of photography for the past 28 years and has a diverse body of work, including documentaries, feature films, and commercials. Peter's signature naturalistic style has taken him around the world to capture life as it happens for fiction and non-fiction films alike. The Pollinators is his feature debut as a director. Select feature credits include the Emmy Award-winning documentary Art and Copy, Michael Moore's Sicko, Pipe Dream, and the cult New York romantic comedy, Ed's Next Move. Peter has done domestic and international documentary work for PBS, HBO, National Geographic, Discovery, and the BBC. His short film, Dance of the Honeybee, had its broadcast premiere on PBS. Commercial work includes campaigns for IBM, Google, SNHU, BlackRock, ESPN slash NASCAR, Dunkin' Donuts, Volvo, and many others. Peter received a BFA in film and television from NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. A passion for nature and documentaries keeps leading him back to explore the intersection between people and the natural world around us. Peter, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Now, one of the things that comes to mind right off is how many times you do your crew get stung? Yeah, well, um, I'm part of the story is that I'm a beekeeper. I've been a beekeeper for about 30 years. So getting stung is not a new thing to me. Um, <laughs> it's uh, I, Typically, I, during a year, I'll get stung maybe five, six, uh, seven times. Um, and but working with these uh, these truckloads of bees, of beehives, it'd be you know millions of bees on a on a truckload um, as they're moving around. Um, you know, my sting ratio went way up, and uh, I stopped counting at about 150. And, uh, I, I just, but you get, you know, it's not like, you know, it's, it's devastating. I'm luckily I'm not allergic and you just kind of get used to it. It's, it's part of the territory. So I would assume that since you've been a beekeeper for 30 plus years, you've been interested in making some sort of video on them for a while now. So what, why now, why the documentary now, uh, what really made you jump to action to get the pollinators together? Well, it's, it's been really a hobby, you know, for uh, for many years. And I did a short uh, film in, I think, 2013 called Dance of the Honeybee um, that uh, it was part of a contest for a phantom camera that Abel Cine ran. And that was uh, – I did really well with it. Sadly, I didn't win the contest. But I had a great time with the film, got a great response to it. And it kind of made me think about doing something bigger and gave me a little bit more confidence to try and um, – do a longer film about bees and I when I I realized that most people didn't know that they move bees commercial migratory beekeepers move bees around the country for agriculture I thought well that could be an interesting way into the story about bees and it also coupled with uh, my 
personal interest of food and agriculture and our food system. So this really was a passion project for myself and my wife, Sally Roy, who's also the executive producer of the film. Sally's an amazing producer and also extremely good on content. So she's extraordinarily helpful in the post-production. And it really is a mom and pop kind of operation here. It's just the basically just the two of us uh, getting this done. And we've just had a, a great time with it. It's been really fun. So where do you start? What's the first step when you're trying to do a documentary? Yeah, with the idea, you know, I did a, um, it, it all starts with the idea and the concept. And so I, I, I thought that this, these commercial migratory beekeepers were really, uh, really interesting. And, and so I did a lot of research. I went to uh, beekeeping conventions and met some people, um, because there are, like anything else, there are beekeeping conventions. And <laughs> I sort of, sort of identified that there were a, a group of people that I, it's a very interesting, only a couple of thousand of these commercial migratory beekeepers in the country. And, that are responsible for moving most of the bees around uh, across the country all the time. And so I thought that was very interesting. And so you start with the concept, start with uh, a treatment. You obviously have to have a budget, which was just a fantasy because we had no money uh, and then try and um, try and get it going. And, and so I, you know, I, I wrote a treatment. Um, I shared it with the, you know, some select people whose opinions I liked and who thought would advise me well on it uh, to, you know, work on the story and the narrative and the structure. Um, and then because I am a, a, a DP and I do own equipment, I figured, well, I can go out and I can shoot. And so it started literally as a backyard project. And um, we, we refer to that as Studio B. Um, and... <laughs> Never miss the opportunity for a good pun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's pretty much how it started. And then, you know, I was originally going to start out um, sleeping in my car if I had to out in California. I knew I needed to get the almond pollination. The idea was to film over a season of pollination. And the almond pollination in California is the biggest pollination event in the world. And they move hmm. about two million beehives out through that one event for almonds. And so I figured, well, I'm going to go out and I'm going to do that. And I'll get some footage to cut together to try and raise some money because we didn't have any any funding, any budget. And um, I was a little reluctant to take the idea to a major network because um, I didn't want the idea to be stolen. And so I was kind of on a little bit on the down low with that. And I wanted to get it done um, in the way that I wanted to do. And as a first time director, I thought, you know, um, I wanted to try and try and make the film I wanted to make. Well, it's interesting because I've always heard that the only way to make a million dollars doing a documentary is to start it with five million. <laughs> yeah, it's a, uh, and there's a very similar, uh, there's a very similar joke that goes in the beekeeping circles, which is, you know, how do you, uh, how do you make a small fortune in beekeeping? You start with a large fortune, you know, uh, so <laughs> very similar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So people don't typically do documentaries to make money and that's not the motivation for us to do this. Um, it was, it really was a passion project and still very much is. So, out of all that footage you, you have captured, what was the most challenging footage to get? Oh, boy. Um, I'd say the high-speed stuff is very challenging. Um, myself, I, I did all the the work with the phantom cameras uh, pretty much on my own. I, I didn't have, we didn't have budget for a tech or an assistant. And so I got trained and learned how to, how to use the, the phantoms through Abel Sinning, who are one of our supporters of the film. And, um, and so I, I did a lot of that stuff myself and um, I did all of it myself, but the, the, the high speed stuff anyway. And it was really kind of a Zen experience, you know, bees move really fast. And so um, it was, I kind of had to rely on my beekeeping experience to know what was going on. And then, you know, <laughs> know, oh, there was something really interesting there and then go back and look at it. And so that was really helpful. That was one of the most challenging things. But also overall, because we're dealing with nature and we're dealing with agriculture and we're dealing with people's businesses, um, having like a really set locked in plan uh, just went out the window literally on day one. And so I learned immediately that I had to be very versatile and uh, flexible with what happened. And and, you know, I was meeting beekeepers that I'd never met before at two o'clock in the morning in the middle of an almond orchard in the Central Valley of California, you know, which is like ice. There's nothing there except for almond trees. And so it was as my wife would say, 
are you okay with this? And I was like, yeah, they're beekeepers. I mean, what could go wrong? You know, it's like, you know, meeting, meeting a beekeeper I never met before, you know, but then <laughs> that, I would get a text to meet somebody at a Google pin. And then I would get another text and say, oh, great. Well, that's not going to happen, but we're going to be 60 miles away and it's going to be four treks instead of one. And so that kind of a thing, you just had to like be totally flexible, but that's what doing documentaries is really about, you know, for me, uh, just being able to uh, adapt to it. I suppose, though, in a way, you meeting the beekeepers out there is not much different than you flying across the country and meeting a production crew. No, not at all. I mean, you know, they have a, you know, I, I had a very uh, simple agreement with these people that um, that I was uh, not going to get hurt. Um, I was not going to interfere with their business. And I was going to tell the truth and take the story where it needed to go. And they all like that. They were, they tend to be a very kind of um, iconoclastic group of people. Most of them are family businesses, very independent minded. They're kind of like cowboys and ranchers and truckers all wrapped up in one. And uh, huh. I, they're just fantastic people. I just love them. And I'm sure your years of beekeeping experience helped you navigate that sort of um, uh, isolated culture that is the, the the trucker beekeepers. Yeah, it was the, my beekeeping experience. The fact that I was not just a guy with a camera, uh, but I was actually a beekeeper with a camera trying to tell this story gave me a certain amount of credibility with right. them, I think. And I knew what was... Uh, you know, I knew what was going on. I knew bee behavior. I certainly don't deal with bees on the level, the scale that they do, but I know bees. And, um, and so that helped a real lot. And it's kind of a, it's like any group, you know, if you, you know, you, you talk to, you know, cops talk to cops and firefighters talk to firefighters and bowlers talk to bowlers. And so there's that common bond and uh, beekeeping is a very interesting group of people. And, and, uh, and we, we got along great. I had a wonderful time with them. What was the sweet frame rate for the Phantom? To capture the bees we went to we shot the whole project in 4k that was a, an idea that i wanted to stick to because i didn't know what the outcome was going to be and i didn't want to limit ourselves so we shot in 4k so that limited us to i think about 15 60 or so with the cameras that we were using frames per second Oof. so did you say that this was your first time using a phantom no, I done the the earlier project, the short film, was something that Abel Cine, um did with uh, Vision Research, the people that make Phantom, and um, it was the idea was to do a short film about a subject, a concept, and I chose bees uh, because it's something I knew, and I kind of you know figured oh that'd be interesting, and so the idea was you had to use that camera, which is a Phantom Miro. Um, uh, to do the whole film. And so I did that. So I had some background experience with that. But then I had a, you know, I used a, a new camera that had never been used before at the time here, uh, which was exciting. And I got trained on that by Abel. And then I had to make sort of uh, adjustments, if you will, to what I expected and what they had available due to their other demands. Um, and so I used, I think I ended up uh, using three or four different cameras over the time period. So I, obviously there's a lots of, dif there's lots of differences between filming in high speed and a normal frame rate. But from a professional standpoint, what are some aspects of filming in high speed that are, or, or like snags in filming in high speed that a newcomer might not expect? Yeah, it's a lot of data, you know, especially, you know, um, the, the way I had the camera set up is, you know, as your frame rate um, expands, your storage contracts. Yeah. And that's just a matter of, of, of data space and, and, um, and buffering and, and, uh, and all that. So, so it was a matter of, um, you know, managing data because a lot of times I was out by myself. And so I was uh, managing data, figuring out how to back things up, figuring out how to, um, save things in the field. Um, and so that was really, that was tricky, but it was, uh, it, it took a lot of planning. Do you know what your shooting ratio was? I don't. Um, I, I know that I shot a, couple hundred hours over the whole film wow Oof. i was just about to ask how many hours of footage you got yeah we, we shot you know the my idea was to film over a season of pollination we started in almonds in february and then we finished up our last uh, shoot you know sort of production shoot was in i think it was november end of november early december in cranberry harvest out, out your way um out in wareham so um it went over a whole year and then i did a a couple of interviews on either side in the in the you know previous year and the following year, uh, just people that I had real scheduling 
problems with. Um, but that was the, the idea. So I just had to, uh, basically be available. The beekeepers would call me up or, you know, somebody that I may not have worked with said, Hey, so and so is moving bees up into apples in Connecticut. Do you want to meet them? And then I would say, Oh, okay, great. And I'd jump in the car and go. Um, and so that was kind of the way it went because dealing with the, flexibility of the um, the season is really important. The pollination has to happen at a certain time, and they're certainly not going to wait for me. Right. So there must have been times where you had to decide to take a paying job or a passion job to go meet a beekeeper or two. Oh, totally. Yeah, it, it, it really messed up my year in terms of the um, in terms of regular work because it's very hard to plan. Some things I knew would happen in advance, you know, roughly. Um, but yeah, it created real havoc. But I, I also felt like, you know, once I started, I had to finish it, you know, and I had to um, make it a priority to um, to get it or it wasn't going to be any good. And I, I really wanted to stick to that concept of going through a season. So in terms of backing up uh, backing up your data and all of that camera footage you had, I mean, how many hard drives did you were you slinging around in your car? <laughs> I imagine you had a laptop and what, like yeah. do- dozens of terabytes of hard drives? My yeah, goodness. Pretty, pretty much. I had, uh, you know, I, I started, I think I'm up around uh, 30 drives doubled. So about 60 drives, I think, is where we are. No, it's about 30 drives. Sorry. 30 drives that are either terabyte, two terabyte or four terabyte. So, um, cause I would always have, you know, um, two drives, an A and a B drive. And then I wouldn't keep that many with me once it was full or near full. I'd ship it out just because, you know, the, the risk is there. Um, and so I, I would send, send them home or, um, send one to the editor is actually, um, uh, important part of this story is, uh, Michael Reuter at Edit Bar. Um, and so he's, uh, you know, he's a good friend and, and it's kind of a fun story how he got involved, but I would ship drives to them as well. Well, how did Michael Reuter get involved? Because I was actually just about to ask about him since editing this project must have been fascinating to see all that yeah, high speed footage. It was it was really cool. It's kind of a it's a great story um, because uh, Reuter and I met um, back doing stop and shop commercials, which Jeff was on many of those. Um, and uh, and I got to know Reuter socially. Uh, usually a DP and an editor don't cross paths that often in commercials, but we got to know him socially. We became very friendly. And then, um, you know, so when I had some footage and I was starting to, I, I needed to raise some money and I needed to cut a little trailer together. I was going through my editor friends here in New York. And, uh, and I also was, uh, people were busy and on projects and I thought, well, let me think out of the box. And so I thought I called Reuter and I said, Hey, I said, do you have any young editors that you may be interested in doing th- something. I don't have any money, but maybe interested in doing something through a reel or experience or whatever. And he said, what's the project? And I told him what I was doing. And he's like, I want to do it. And so I was like, really? And so that's how he got on. And um, he and Edit Bar really gave us a, a leg up because they um, helped us all the way through the editorial process right to the end. And um, he said, you know, once we got into it, I think he got really kind of jazzed by the story. It's it's an important story, um, and it's a story that not many people know. Um, and so he was like, yeah, dude, we want to do the whole thing. And so I was, I was like in the embrace of Edit Bar um, through the whole post-production, which is I'm just so grateful for. So what's the one thing, and you've been a, uh, you know, a beekeeper for many years yourself, what's the one thing that you learned that you weren't aware of about bees? Well, there, the, you know, the great thing about bees is there's always something to learn. I mean, people spend their lifetime, you know, get a doctorate and then study queen behavior or drone behavior or communication or anything. So you can really, it's kind of a, a bottomless well, depending on how you want to get into it. And I, I always, one of the things I love about bees is I'm always seeing different things and I'm seeing behavior that's different or seeing a pollen that I've never seen before in the legs of a bee or whatever. And, and we had a, a great moment when we were out filming, when I was filming with two beekeepers that have been keeping bees longer than I'm alive. And they, <laughs> broke the wall. Well, it's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
but they 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 broke the wall and they um, they turned around. And they asked me. They said, "Hey, Pete, have you ever seen seen this before?" And I don't even remember what it was, but it was some behavior that was going on with the bees in that particular time. And I, I was like, "Wow, it really said something to me about these people that have been keeping bees for you know fifty something years, and they're still seeing stuff." both of them that they had never seen before. And that kind of was like, wow, this is, it's, it's pretty amazing. So I, but I guess to be more direct in answering your question, I guess the thing that was a real revelation for me was the scale of the um, commercial migratory beekeeping in the U.S. and the amount of uh, amount of bees that are moved around that our agricultural system is really dependent upon that. And so that was kind of like an eye opener to me. These these monocultures and and uh, giant um, operations that require thousands and thousands of bees to be brought in. So from what I understand, if only the worker or or, or queen honeybee can sting. Then all the worker bees are female. They're all female. Yep. The the um, there the there's one queen in a hive. All the workers are female, and they basically do everything. The drones are the the males, and they uh, their only role is to mate, basically mate potentially, and not with their own queen, but they fly out and they look for a queen to mate with um, during their lifetime. And most of them don't do that. Um, but they, you know, that's their role. The, there are a lot of jokes that can be made about that, uh, comparisons. <laughs> um, but there, there are. Oh, I wonder what those could be. Um, <laughs> uh, but the, the, the sweet revenge, if you will, is that the, the, as the winter comes in this part of the world, all the drones get kicked out of the hive by the workers because they're layabouts and they don't contribute anything. And so they just. Sounds like, like my kids. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. So going uh, away from the pollinators for a moment, what is the biggest difference between working on a documentary feature regarding nature and maybe a more historical uh, focus? So from documentary to documentary, what do you think are some big differences people might not expect? Well, I think, you know, with with a documentary like we did, you know, we had kind of a roadmap for what we wanted to do and the story we wanted to tell. But you never know what's going to happen. You never know who's going to speak well, who's what events are going to happen, what's going to be interesting. And you really find that out in the edit room. Um, whereas I think if you're doing a film about, you know, um, Hopper or an artist or, you know, George Washington, um, then it's it's sort of much more planned and you're trying to hit a script. And there really isn't a script in a documentary, um, in the type of documentary that, that we did. And um, we had to discover that story um, and bring it out and thread it together in the edit room. And that's a, an extremely creative part of the process. How long was that editing process? It took about a year. You know, it was... Um, you know, the, what I worked out with Reuter is, is uh, very busy um, almost all the time, but he's also got an incredible work ethic. Um, so I would either go up to Boston and work with him after he worked all day, you know, on a commercial or another project. And we'd work until the wee hours of the morning and then I'd go home and sleep and he'd go home for sleep a little while and come back and do it again. And so we've had times when we would do that. And then other times he would um, he would come down here to where we are in the Hudson Valley of New York and he would bring his rig and we'd set up a little uh, space like right behind me here, literally. And um, we set up a little edit room. And um, and so he'd be working there and, and I would you know, be working with him. And so we'd like jam on that for three, four, five days at a time. And then he would go back and then we'd rendezvous again up in Boston or back here or even in New York City. We worked there once or twice, I think. So it was but the whole process took about a year. Man, this documentary needs a documentary about the behind the scenes. (laughs) That's a crazy crazy. story. Yeah, it's it's really. But, you know, we we didn't have the luxury of having a big budget and a uh, but we also didn't have um, the constraint of um, meeting a tough time schedule either we had to we you know our goal was to tell the story make it good and make it so people wanted to see it and and so that was our that was our goal and so that's the you know the schedule we kind of worked on now getting back to the bees for a minute um you went all over the these beekeepers go all over the country so when you went to location to location i would guess with some of the same beekeepers did you notice any difference in the way the bees performed or acted from one part of the country to the other? 
No, not really. I mean, bees are bees respond to weather. They tend to be. It's kind of a rainy day here in New York. They, they a day like today, I wouldn't go open a beehive because they tend to be a little bit irritable. Um, <laughs> but they respond to temperature, sunlight, uh, weather in general, um, and so they. In, and they they get very bees get kind of excited. They're in their element when there's a lot going on, when there's a, a place for them to forage. And in the almond orchards or the apple orchards, when I've been there, it's kind of cool. You can walk through or stand there and just listen to the buzz of all the bees in the trees or in the ground on the pumpkins or wherever. And uh, that's pretty amazing. I love that. So from the almond fields or whatever they're called in California to the cranberry bogs in Massachusetts, a bee's a bee. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're um I mean, and it's it's important to know about bees that honeybees are not native to North America. They came with the first settlers. And so they came in what, sixteen twenty two, I think. Right. And uh they, you know, came with the first settlers and they went feral almost immediately. Um they're one of um uh, they're one of 4,000 species, roughly 4,000 species in North America alone. And they all do uh, their own thing. You know, most bees are solitary. They don't live in a hive like honeybees do. And, um, you know, plants and bees evolve together um, through millennia. And so there's this, oftentimes there's a specialization of a certain plant needs a certain bee in order to pollinate it. Uh, and there are other bees that are, will sort of adapt and do multiple species and are more generalists. And so that's the, you know, part of the web and the ecosystem that is really important is why all those bees, um, need to be protected and respected. You know, we need to really, uh, keep an eye out for them because everything else is dependent upon them. Speaking of protecting, how big of a threat is this, uh, new, uh, murder hornet? Yeah, it's 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 um it's gotten a lot of hype. Um, I will not deny that the the Asian hornet, Asian giant hornet, is a fierce thing, and it's you know an introduced or invasive species is something we really need to pay attention to. Um, but it's it, it got a lot of hype. I think it's a little bit overblown. Having said that, I think that they really do need to in you know work hard to ensure that it doesn't spread because once they get established, you know they you know they could be they could be a real problem i mean other invasive species uh you know down in florida whether it's a lizard or you know a, a huge snake of some flavor um can really devastate the ecosystem and i didn't know if that would be the same thing with the myrtle hornet yeah there, there's another um a good comparison is there's another species of um of honeybee it's called the asian um Apis serrana, which is the Asian honeybee, and they have dealt with the Asian giant hornet for years, for millennia, and they've adapted to them a mechanism to defend against them. Whereas when they get to the European honeybee, the Apis mellifera, they haven't adapted that, and so they 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 could wipe out a hive pretty easily. So back on the production aspect of the pollinators, uh, as you said, this was your first feature that you directed. And it's a pretty huge project from what it sounds like. So what do you think were some of the greatest challenges of both directing this feature and being the, dire uh, the director of photography? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. I guess, you know, the, the good thing was that um, I didn't have somebody in my ear all the time telling me what to do and where to go. That was up to me. But that's also kind of terrifying because I didn't yeah. have anybody in my ear telling me where to go and what to do. Um, so that was a, a challenge that I, you know, when I was out shooting, you know, much of the film, I was acting as sort of the, I was acting as the, essentially the field producer, the, you know, the DP, the, um, the director, and then also the data wrangler as well, because we just literally didn't have anybody else to do it. I, I, the only crew that we um, had solidly was audio. And that was something that I felt like was beyond my capabilities to do well. I have tremendous respect for what audio people do. And I thought it was, you know, I've always believed that it's its own job. And I, I don't like the idea of uh, a cinematographer necessarily doing audio um, unless absolutely necessary. So I would, if we had a schedule to um, to talk to somebody to do an interview, I would always have an audio person there um, because good sound in documentaries is almost more important than good pictures. Because mm. if you can't hear somebody, they're mumbled. It's bad sound. You can't use it. You can always cover 
sound with pictures, but you can't do it the other way around usually. And um, and I had a lot of fun with that. I, I have great respect for for audio people. And and what I did was I tried to tell them, you know, on on this job, you know, while I'm off doing the B roll, I know you do what you do because you love recording sound. So go have fun. Record what you want to record if you have that time. Beehives, I know, make incredible sounds. So try and capture as much of that as you can, uh, just because I know I'll use it later on. And um, just, you know, have fun and just do what you always want to do on a job, but often don't have the time to do. And so that they love that. Um, and uh, so it was great. But the, um, you know, the I chose to do the interviews. I wanted the interviews to be outside as much as possible. So that was its own challenge. Um, but, and I did them very simply. There's very little camera movement or adjustment because I had to be shooting, but then also had to be on my game to have that conversation and ask those questions. And so kind of like shooting the interviews was something I've done, you know, hundreds and hundreds of interviews. So in a way that was almost, I want to say second nature to me because I didn't take it for granted, but it was one of the easier things was to find a shot and set up a shot. But then right. you know, having that conversation, responding to people is really hard. And so making sure that, you know, I felt like they were being paid attention to and I wasn't paying attention to the to the shot like I would when I'm working for other people as a, as a DP was really important. So I had to, I, I felt like in a way, I, I kept the style of the interviews sort of simple to because I was wearing multiple hats. We have a local audio guy that's been around in the Boston market for many years. And one of his favorite sayings is no one leaves the movie whistling wide shot. Yeah. So yeah. the audio is definitely, <laughs> you know, a big part of the story. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's huge. And, um, you know, I know that as a, as a DP and particularly as a documentary person, you know, I think, my ears are as important as my eyes because I listen when I'm working with other people. I'm listening very carefully to what people are saying, either in an interview or not in an interview. Right. And that that becomes, you know, fodder for me as a cinematographer. It becomes kind of a, um, a list in my head of images that might help an editor down the road. And that's kind of the way I approach my, my job as a, as a DP and a documentary or a commercial documentary commercial. We do interviews or whatever. Um, then, you know, so, so listening is really important to me. And, um, and I, I have great respect for, um, you know, what the, uh, what the audio people do. And, and Mario Condreas, uh, was, uh, he worked on this with me and he was fun. He was great to, He's a great, great to work with. Him. Yeah. And another thing about sound is that if let's say, you know, you're watching a film or, or whatnot and there's some bad framing or maybe, you know, they're, they're doing some strange movements that they don't, don't look all too great. A lot of general audiences might just have that brush over them and not really be affected. But if sound is bad, everybody's going to notice, you know, if all of a sudden the sound drops out, boom, that scene's ruined. You're, you're totally right. It's, you know, and you can, like I said before, you know, you can, you can always cover the, um, you can cover the, the audio with, um, with pictures, but you can't cover the picture with audios necessarily. I mean, sometimes you can, but uh, having people be understood and clear was really important. I got caught a couple of times when something happened and I always had a camera mic on. Um, you know, I, I, I got caught with a couple of moments in the film, which I'm happy to say nobody notices, um, where, <laughs> which, where I was just using a camera mic. Um, and it was just a, a you know, verite, um, situation. So it worked out really well. Well, but, um, you know, having that good sound was really, really important to me. So you mentioned that you were doing, you know, all the shooting basically with with the occasional sound people there when you're doing interviews. What were you doing for lighting? Did you have a couple lights you were bringing around and setting up with you? Yeah, I did. Um, I, I did a little bit. Um, I'm very simple because, you know, I was, you know, again, by myself and traveling by myself um, oftentimes and picking up uh, local sound people. Um, so I had, uh, you know, a couple of uh, small LED lights. Um, I had a, um, what they call a scrimbrella um, for scrimbrella. You know, outside, outside interviews. It was very simple and easy to manage. And I had to, I didn't want to burden myself with um, having a lot of stuff. And so I had to kind of think, I think, creatively in terms of finding locations and um, and working with the the day the time um, the light uh, and all of that to make it make it work but I I had a I always had some lights with me because you never you know you never want to be caught out that way so we actually have a couple of email questions here in pertaining to you and the film 
So the first one is from Danielle from Massachusetts. And she asks, what kind of research did you have to do prior to directing the pollinators? And I know you mentioned that you did research earlier. So would you like to go into what someone who has been beekeeping for as long as you have would have had to make sure they understood they understood before they began a documentary about them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I, um, I read a lot of books about bees. I, I through my life as a beekeeper, I read a lot of books. Uh, because there's always something to to learn. But then um, I read a lot of studies, uh, scientific studies um, and uh, reports and papers. Um, I uh, saw what else was out there and I wanted to be very careful not to repeat what other people had done. Um, right. So I really kind of, uh, you know, boned up on, on recent work and then also um, trends and science and things like that. So I did, I kind of drilled down as much as I could through all media to do it. And then I, I you know, the, the great thing about the time that we're in now is like, if you want to do an interview with somebody, a lot of times you can find what they look like, what they sound like, you know, in some form on the internet, particularly some of the scientists, you know, so I had an idea of, you know, maybe oh, this person is really can put a sentence together and, uh, you know, so on. So that's a little bit of part of the research to find out what they talked about, what their specialty was. And I had identified certain people, um, uh, that I wanted to speak about certain subjects and some, some things, you know, took over a year to get them to, to, uh, to get to them or get them or find a time when we could meet up. Right. So, yeah, it's just an ongoing thing in research. And I'm, I'm still reading stuff today about different developments because people ask me about it. So I have an email here, Nick from Peabody, Mass. What is the number one thing that the average person can do to help stop the demise of the honeybee, you know, immediately? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and one of the things that I love about this subject of this film, the topic of this, is there's something that everybody can do something to make it better. And literally anybody who sees this film can can make a change to uh, to make it better. And that could be really, really simple things like uh, finding a local beekeeper and buying local honey and supporting that mm. local beekeeper or uh, stop using a lawn service. Maybe it puts chemicals on your lawn that kills the clover and dandelions that bees, and it's not just honeybees, it's all bees, uh, you know, rely upon for nutrition, for forage or um, supporting your local CSA or your farmer's market or getting involved in local legislation. I know there are towns near us here that um, people have banned the use of chemicals by the highway crews that spray herbicides on the side of the road and they cut it instead. And you think, well, what does an herbicide do? Well, it wipes out forage for bees. Um, planting a garden is really important, you know, and um, even if it's only a window box or a community garden, all of those things are, are, are things that people can do. There's not one thing I would recommend people do, but I guess, I guess if there is one thing, it's ask questions. You know, if you go to the supermarket, ask where things are from, ask to try and find out where they were grown and who grew, grew them. If you're buying plants, you know, find out where they treated with pesticides before they showed up at the nursery. You know, asking questions is really the most important thing I think people can do. I think, um, you know, getting back to buying local honey, I've been told, and maybe you can confirm this or not, that if you have allergies and you take and use local honey, you have a better chance of uh, combating those allergies. I I believe that, and but the stipulation is that it should be raw honey, and it shouldn't be heated, pasteurized, and all that. Because what makes that work is the pollen that gets in the honey that you you get through the process, and having those um, those elements in them so they're not cleaned out and heated up and destroyed is is a good thing. So people have said that. I don't. Luckily, I don't have allergies, um, but people have said that, and I do believe that. And it's just great. You know, honey is like so interesting because it's different every year and it depends on what the bees are foraging on. So um, the honey from this yard here is not going to taste the same year to year and it certainly won't taste the same as uh, bees that are flying near um, a, a blueberry field or a cranberry bog or whatever. There's a there's a because all of that ends up the nectar has a characteristic 
and the pollen has a characteristic that ends up in the honey. So it's unique. Um, the one thing about honey that's really important is to check where it's from. And there's a lot of fraudulent honey out there and particularly in the supermarkets. And you have to really look at the label and find out that it's a USA honey um, and made in the USA, not packaged in the USA, because there's fraudulent honey that comes in from overseas and South America that is not even honey. And so, you know, that's why working with a local beekeeper is, uh, is really the best way because they're, they're kind of an interesting group of people too, I think. And um, you can learn a lot about, you know, about your local flora and fauna that way. Well, I'd really like to thank you for joining us today and congratulations yeah. on, what is it, 10 awards so far? The pollinators? Uh, Eleven, I think. Eleven so, awards. Uh, yeah. Well, I stand, I stand corrected. <laughs> Congratulations. Well, before, before, before you, you scoot out our guests, we got to ask him one more thing. Oh, yeah. You're forgetting now, Mr. Nelson. Oh, I forgot about this. Sorry. <laughs> no, no problem. Thanks to the magic of editing, we can we can fix this up. <laughs> so, for someone like me, who is interested in getting into the field of film and TV production, I suppose in this case, particularly someone who would like to be a director of photography, or maybe somebody who would love to work on a passion project such as this, what is some advice you'd give to someone uh, going into the into the career field? Yeah, it's, um, it's, I mean, I love what I do. I think I have the greatest job, you know, working on documentary films. I think that um, I, I just never get tired of it. It's different almost every day. You never know who you're going to meet. You never know where you're going to go. And um, I, it's, it's a real privilege to to be parachuted into somebody's life, you know, for a day, a week or a month or a year. Um, and that's just a it goes with my desire to have kind of learn something every day. Um, everybody has a different path to get here. And um, and so my path was I wanted to be a cameraman since I was a kid. I have no idea why. Nobody in my family was in the film business and just kind of, it was just a desire I had. It probably came from watching National Geographic and uh, Wild Kingdom and Jacques Cousteau, for all I know. But I thought it would be an interesting <laughs> thing to do. And I, so I found myself there. My path was to go um, to film school and I went to NY I went to USC. I didn't like USC so much. So I transferred to NYU and then, um, you know, started working in a camera, I'm sorry, in a lighting rental house when I was still in college. And that was amazing for me because I was seeing a whole other aspect of the industry than I was learning in film school and also met people there that I still work with today. And so building those relationships is, is really important for, for any person, you know, coming up is the person that you're standing next to in class with or dealing with on the phone might be somebody who's going to be in the position to hire you or fire you down the road and also refer you to work. So, so building those relationships over years is, is really, really, really important. Um, and you never know where it's going to, where it's going to take you. And I guess the, the other, Bit of overall advice I would say would be to never stop learning. You know, I, I walk into a room and I look at a room and say, all right, how would I like this for this scene? Or how it is the dialogue that goes on in my head. And it may seem kind of crazy, but it's always a challenge. And it keeps me thinking about being thrown into a situation of like, you know, we have to think fast and have to get something done in an hour or two. And so right. I, I've kind of like, try to train myself to keep in the game, keep busy, keep thinking, keep reading, keep learning, going to museums. I was on a webinar today with uh, ADDPs from around the world, um, just talking about different things. So that's kind of the stuff that, um, you know, I learn something every day about the technology is changing so fast, um, but the craft, you know, is is always there. And the, and that's something that I strongly believe in is the, the, the craft that needs to go into into the filmmaking to make it really, really good. I hope that answered. No, that's beautiful. It, uh, it also is quite inspiring for me because all of that stuff you talk where you mentioned how dynamic your job is and how much you love it. That's that's why I'm interested in film and TV production. I want to do that. You know, I don't want to go to a desk job and do the same thing every day. I, I want to be thrown into new environments constantly. So it was great to hear um, someone who has had so many years in the in the industry sound so excited about that. Yeah, and I, you know, the other part of the my my sort of trajectory, if you will, uh, or flatline, whatever you call it, I don't know. <laughs> my my journey was, I wanted to become get interested in camera, but I also had an early opportunity to learn um, through the lighting rental house, um, lighting and grip, 
and we worked right. with, you know, and I learned the equipment and I learned the people and uh, learned a lot about um, the tools, the lighting tools that if you work in strictly a camera house, you may not know some of those. And um, so that that was really important. Everybody, all this stuff that we learn, you know, goes in the bags that we carry around with us. And so I think it's interesting to to learn about makeup. I don't want to be a makeup person, but it's important to know as a DP about a little bit about makeup. And the same thing it is about, you know, how to um, how to you know, how an LED works or how, you know, how to set up a butterfly, you know, all those things are important because you have a, have an understanding a little bit about other people's jobs is really important. And I worked as an AC, um, I joined the, the union in New York and worked as an AC and I did commercials, documentaries and feature films. And when I decided to change uh, my card. I wanted to do the same thing because I like the different elements of the different jobs, and so I liked having that that aspect of variety. Um, it probably has something to do with a short attention span, but I, I like. I think they all feed on each other, and um, so there there is no one way. And um, I think that you know, following um, to do it for the right reasons is the most important thing. Is to do it for the passion and right. uh, trying to you know working together with people is great. I mean, it's. You know, it's just, you know, Jeff and I've worked a tremendous amount together, um, you know, doing stop and shop commercials, which is great. It, was, it seemed like, you know, yesterday and it wasn't, you know, um, but I, I love that. It's, it's part of a family on a crew. And that's a really important thing. I'm available tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> well, Jeff, now you can kick him out. Yeah. Oh, no, I was not trying to kick him out i was just trying to conserve his his uh time but uh i have plenty of time so i wanted to make sure that you know the accolades were there congratulations on oh. all the awards uh that, yeah. that the pollinator have won and i think it's an important cause that uh people don't really don't think about they go to the grocery store they don't know where that stuff comes from yeah it's it's true and, it, and it's a you know we've been we've been super delighted to get um, some awards along the way, but the the most rewarding thing for me is that people want to see the film, and it's a conversation starter. And the greatest reward for me is when somebody tells me, you know, I went to the supermarket and I look at things differently now, and it's like that was what our goal was to do was to, and I think that's the goal of um, film. Its real strength is to be able to change the lens a little bit, if you will, change the focus for the how we perceive the world and how we see the world. And that that is the ultimate gift to me, much more than anything else. Very well said. Well, thank you. So the film is out now digitally, and it's available on iTunes and Amazon and Google Play and a bunch of others, Vimeo On Demand. Um, and you can find out more information. Our website is thepollinators.net. Um, and it's also available through Canopy and educationally for universities. So we're, we're doing our best to get it out there, and, and uh, I hope people can check it out. Well, sounds great. I definitely know that I'll be you know passing it around, making sure that people are watching it. Thank you again for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's great talking to you. Thank you for joining us today as we dive into the people behind our beloved industry. You can find our show on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed the show, follow us on Twitter at Real Insider News or email us questions at realinsidernews at gmail.com. You can also leave us a review on iTunes. 